Um, a few weeks ago, Annabeth was apprehensive about something that was going to happen, more than I've ever seen her before. She's usually a pretty calm person. Um, she was apprehensive more about this than about having her four babies. So that gives you some idea of the level of apprehension that she had. She was apprehensive because she was called to be on jury duty, right? And she was terrified about being on a jury. So she showed up when she needed to at the courthouse in Guelph, and it was a murder trial that has just only now resolved this week in a verdict of, of guilty and no parole for 25 years. But as Annabeth stood with all of the other potential jurors, um, she was running through in her head all of the reasons she couldn't serve on a jury. You've done that, right? Or, or maybe there are some of you who would love to be on a jury and feel like you wouldn't mind committing four weeks of your lives in listening to testimony and all of that. But as, uh, as the, the thing wound on in the morning, um, the, the judge read out this long, long list of names. And he asked the question, um, if you know any of the people whose names I have just read, you have to come and tell me. So there were um, all of the relatives of the, the accused person. Um, there were all of the investigating police departments, um, which were OPP and RCMP and Guelph, and there were all kinds of police forces. And Annabeth, to her delight, heard in the list the word, the name Brendan Campbell. And I think she shot her hand up. But anyway, when the judge called her forward, uh, he said, how do you know Brendan Campbell? And I think she got it out of her mouth straight, I'm his mom. He was immediately dismissive of her that she was not a candidate for the jury, which her boys had told her would definitely be the case, that all they needed to do, all she needed to do was to say, I have boys that are police officers, and they would have dismissed her. And particularly since one of her boys was one of the investigators on the specific. So she was scot-free by lunchtime, and I think she thought, well, what was I so worried about? But the whole idea of facing a judge is, is, a, is quite a, a sobering idea, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you found yourself and you know, there's a little gallery of people all listening intently to what you say, and the, and the judge calls you for and says, I want to speak to you. It would be kind of a terrifying thing, right? And um, just a, a, a very, you know, strategic, significant moment to be spoken to by a judge. We are following Jim Packer in his, his chapters through the attributes of God and the various parts of the theology of God. And we come to the one where we're talking about God as judge. And I said to you last week that I think we have an easy time of it um, conceiving of God as the one who is a God of love, we have a harder time actually needing to know a God who is a God of grace um, because the backstory of all of that is something that we have kind of wiggled our way through. And I'm going to review that briefly this morning because it kind of shows us the way forward to, to now. But the next one is to think about God as judge. And 
Is that something we would like to think about? Is it something we realize we must think about? Or is it something that we have kind of dismissed out of hand? Um, And then I'm going to go away for a week of holidays, and uh, Mike is going to talk about the God of anger, the wrath of God. And he was, I don't know, he was sort of wringing his hands in glee when he said he would take on that subject. I think he has some things to process. So we'll look forward to that. But God is our judge. So let me remind you of what we talked about last week um, as we try to be balconiers on this whole thing. And we, we talked about the idea that we, we don't have the perceived need of God as a God of grace because we maybe don't feel the need, actually, of having grace in our lives. We, we all know that we need it to some measure, but not desperately. And as I tried to unravel Packer's um, thoughts, as he looked at his society now decades ago, I think it came down in, in my understanding to these three ideas that kind of move the need for grace into the background. So first of all, we talked about moral complacency, that um, we live in a day when we have become quite complacent. Packer would say because our lives are really quite comfortable, so we don't need to obsess over morality and ethics so much. Um, We just live our lives, and we are living them kind of dulled into a place of complacency. The next is that we we realize that our world is a terrible place, but perhaps we have just had to find ourselves in a place of moral desensitization, where if we hear one more account of bad news— Like this morning, within 24 hours, another mass shooting. And what do you do? I think you either freeze in horror or somehow or other you, you have to manage that that's the world we live in. And maybe we just need to desensitize ourselves and say, if I got terrified and and abhorred about every awful thing that happened, I, I wouldn't be able to function in life. The third thing is moral concessionism, and that's the one that I think is important for us to to move into today to, to today with, uh, which is basically the the current and popular thought that God, after all, um, if He's the loving God that we want Him to be, at the end of the day, He'll just say it's all right. There, there. And if we plead with God that he shouldn't judge us, he might just say, ah, okay. So Packer says that whatever the things are that have operated in our lives and in our world, we have ended up in a place where we don't desperately need God's grace. We don't desperately need this chesed, the, the, the kindness, the forgiveness, the, the mercy of God. Um, whereas he would say if, if we were to catch ourselves on, we would realize that we desperately, desperately need God's grace. That we, we are without standing. We, we would stand in the courtroom of God's justice, and um, the judge would say, is there anything that you want to present in your own defense? And we would honestly have to say, no, there's not. We, we might have felt as though we were relatively good. We might have thought we have contributed quite well in our world, in our society. But at the end of the day, against the standard of God's high and holy laws, we would have to say, I, I, have, I have nothing to say. Then we need to desperately depend on God's grace, which is the story of today.
as we think about um, what the scriptures tell us about um, God as judge, uh, I, I want us to go back to the Old Testament, and there is, there is a, a biblical premise that is spoken by Abraham, and we're going to see how that works out, both in the Old Testament context and then into the New Testament. So in the Old Testament, it says this in Genesis 18. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. That's King James. I just put it in because every now and then we need to read in King James, so we don't forget how to. What is happening here is that God is talking, and he says, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has come to my ears. So I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come up unto me, and if not, I will know. Now, understanding this stretches our heads. Um, so this is, this is an anthropomorphism. How, how was it that God would come down and find out? How was it that God didn't know until he actually came down and investigated? We, we, we don't understand those things. I had two lovely uh, senior citizens yesterday who um, came along our pathway, and I was outside, and they asked if they could talk to me. And they began a little spiel that said, our world is a terrible place, isn't it? And I said, yes, are you Jehovah's Witnesses? (laughs) Yes, we are. So I said, well, I admire the work you do. We have a fundamental disagreement, and it was worked out in the fourth century, and it was a heresy then, and it's a heresy now. And so we really don't have anything to talk about because you have the wrong belief in the nature of Jesus. You, You don't believe he's God. You think he's God's son. And so the man began a very kind and gentle kind of argument. He said, well, um, how can a person who is God say that my father is greater than me if he is the father and if he is God? Why would he say such a thing? And I said, you think that's a a problem? I can give you a hundred things that are beyond what I can figure out that have to do with God being God, God being three. I said, how can God be one and three at the same time? And he said, see, I told you. And I said, well, if I understood that, and if you understood that, if I understood and you understood how it is that Jesus could say the Father is greater than me, we would be sitting at the committee meeting in heaven writing our proper theology of the whole thing. So we had a very nice conversation, and um, they kindly told me that it was nice that I was nice to them. I learned long ago to stop being the jerk that I can be, right? Because the person next door had slammed the door in their face, and that's too bad. Um, The person that said, you don't believe the Bible, (laughs) slammed the door, and there we go. I'd say that because... We don't understand, we could not understand if God were to tell us what it is that he does or means, we wouldn't be able to get it. So he tells it to us the way we could understand it. What we have to be careful about with that is presuming that that is the whole end of the thing, that that's the whole story. Whereas it's not, it's probably an anthropomorphism. I mentioned to Bethany this week, but Bethany's dad said something to me when he was here. There was, he's a really smart man. And he said, I think most of the problems we have could be sorted out um, 
when we understand that we, we are limited to anthropomorphisms. And I think he's right. It's because we have to think in human terms, but then we end up finally thinking in human terms. So if God explains things in human terms so that we can even begin to grasp them, we need to be careful not to think that that's the sum total of the truth. So all of that to say that somehow or other, God said, I don't know what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, how, how could he not? And I will go down to see what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And you think, well, how would he go down? What does that mean? Um, and then he says, when I get there, I will know. So there we go. We go a little bit farther than that. And we find that Abraham, um, who is now in God's favor and understanding that God has chosen to bless him. So God says to himself, it's not right that I don't explain to Abraham what I'm going to do. So he tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, what? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And then he begins that little negotiation with God. Are you going to destroy all of the righteous people along with the wicked people? And he, he begins bargaining. He says, suppose there are 50 righteous people. Will you still destroy the place? Suppose it's less than that. Suppose it's, it's, suppose it's all the way down. So there we have Abraham who understands of God that God is the judge of the whole earth and surely he would do what's right. I'm not going to get into the whole what was Sodom and Gomorrah. It's sort of the epitome of um, human wickedness in the stories of the Bible. And he's, God says, I should tell Abraham what I'm up to. And Abraham says, what? whoa, whoa, whoa. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? We take that then into the New Testament. And in the New Testament, um, Peter, who is responding to the instructions not to keep on preaching, to go home and be quiet. He says this, um, He, God, or Jesus, ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So we now have a transfer of responsibility. God, who is God triune, God himself, perhaps God the Father, is the one who messes with Sodom and Gomorrah and what's going on with humankind, who allows Abraham to catch his attention. And then he says, I'm going down to see, and then I'll know. And then we get a segue into the New Testament where we find that God, in fact, is not going to be the judge, but he has committed judgment to the Son, not the Father, but the Son now has the authority to judge. And I think that's very important for us, because this whole notion of God coming down to see what's going on, in a sense, is a picture of the incarnation. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, it's like he came down to see what's going on. And when he came down to see what was going on, all that transpired ended up with him being given the authority to finally judge all things. Now, we have some kids in with us here today, and 
I think when, when you're hanging out with your friends or your brothers and sisters, um, sometimes you get to the point that you kind of go running to your mom and dad and you say, it's not, what is, Lizzie, what's the word? It's not fair, right? So what are some of the things that your brothers and sisters do or that happen that would make you say, it's not fair? Give me a couple of ideas. It's not fair when... Hmm? When he gets the biggest piece, that's not fair, right? What else? He gets to bed, go to bed later than me, it's not fair. She always has to sit in the back seat. That's not fair. I should be able to sit in the front seat, right? We have four kids, and the older two kids are always pressing the case that we did not deal fairly with them compared to the young two. Mostly, we didn't notice by the time there were three and four because you get to just closing the door. You know, you start by having the bedroom door wide open so you can hear every little peep. And then when there's the fourth one, you just close the bedroom door. Especially when they get to be teenagers. Because then you don't know when they came home or what they did, right? It's not, but it's not fair. You have different rules for us than you have for them. Um, our daughter says you have different rules for the boys than for the girl, right? Sylvie, you were thinking of one. They exclude me. Okay. All of us, this pokes at a sense that we have for fairness, right? Uh, there is something in all of us that says, that's not fair. We have, um, we've had some drama on our street, not serious drama, but they, they've moved around parking signs. And it's, it's a case of the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing. So we ended up for a while... Um, with a parking sign that says, no parking from here to the corner. And then about 15 feet farther on in, there's another sign that says, no stopping. So if you can't park, well, well, if you can't stop, so people were thinking it was okay to park there because they were, it was there you're not supposed to park, and everybody was confused. And then, next thing you know, the bylaws truck came around, and the two bylaws officers were standing, staring at the signs. And so a neighbor and I went out and said, what does this mean? And they said, we have no idea. <laughs> and we said, well, then you're not going to write tickets, right? And they said, oh, no. We promise you that within a day, one of these signs will be gone. So my one neighbor... Uh, who had gotten a ticket, he said, you, you know, it's not fair. Right? And, and it's because that's our immediate reflex, right, is to say if, if things aren't evenly meted out somehow or other, it's not fair. And it's okay if we're all penalized, but don't be just picking on me because that's not fair. So we all have this desperate need for something to be sorted out and we need someone to sort it out who has authority to do that, right? So the bylaws guys ultimately did have the authority, um, but they didn't yet because they didn't know, and they went, they went back and found out and got it, and then everybody can say, 
Okay. So now when we see people parked towards the corner on the other side of the no stopping sign, we go, uh-oh. And then we're kind of happy when the bylaws guys come along. Because, right, it's not fair now if they get to use that nice parking area and we don't. That's not fair. So the whole matter of fairness and justice comes down to this nature of God, this attribute of God, that he is the judge. And he is the judge of the whole earth. And the judge of the whole earth says, Abraham surely will do what's right. God comes down to have a look. And then he finally gives judgment over to his son Jesus. And we are told that he is now the judge of the living and the dead. So as I think about that this morning, there are just a few ways um, that I think it's helpful for us to know how it is that in Jesus, um, justice has been served. Because I think there are some pairings, there's some, there's some matches, meetings that go on in the incarnation that not only qualified Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead, um, but, but they, they give us the trust and the confidence that this is the right one. It's not somebody from up and beyond who arbitrarily declares and dispenses justice. It's someone who came down to see. And I think here are the ways that this happened. In Jesus, justice and humanness meet. So Jesus came and he lived a real life among real people. And his humanness was a forensic humanness. He lived real relationships with people who had real relationships with, with one another. And they would often come to him and ask him to mediate in their disputes or in their relationships. And the way he responds is always very interesting. I mean, there's one notorious situation where a man comes and he says, could you tell my brother to give me my part of the inheritance? And Jesus said, who made me a judge over you? Uh, he was not abdicating his responsibility to be judge over them, but he was, he was poking at something and saying, really, you're asking me this? What, what authority are you assuming I have to, to make that decision? Mary and Martha. One sister comes one day and says, Master, could you talk to my sister? Why? Well, because she's, she never helps in the kitchen. She's, she always leaves me out here, and she's in having all these interesting conversations. Go tell her to come and do the dishes. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better part. So some people don't like Jesus in that. If you're a Martha, it's like Jesus doesn't understand. All right? Come on. If you're a Mary, oh, Jesus does understand. All right? Um, the disciples, um, could, could you help us settle the question of who's really important here? Um, could our mom have a word? Right. So, so Jesus, he gets into the mix of humanity, of humanness, um, and he qualifies to be the judge. Sometimes... Um, People will readily allow him to, to, to pass judgment, or, but, but he, everybody has the sense that the Jesus who is our master 
is the one that we can trust to give us the answer that's fair. Second thing this is that in Jesus, justice and religion meet. So he deals with religion because religion is proposing to be the, the final court. That if you meet our rules, you will pass. And Jesus came to earth to, to get rid of that. He came to earth and said, no, what you've done is that you've turned that into a system, a regime of power and oppression. You've established a ruling class, and we won't have that. That's not religion. So I'm here to get that sorted out. And we, we asked that question, is that why Jesus came, to fix religion? And the answer is yes, in part, that's why he came. So we have to be very careful today that we don't allow religion to just pass edicts about what's good, bad, right, wrong, and all of that sort of thing. We have to turn to Jesus and say, our final court of appeal is Jesus. What did he say about what real religion is? Not what did religion say, or not even what does religion say. Because in Jesus, God came down to see what was going on. He came down and he saw that in religion, um, there were things that were not right. In Jesus, justice and grace meet. So here's this woman, and she is, she is dazed um, because there has been an onslaught of accusations against her. And there have been these angry men who have stones in their hands, and they're, they're going to stone her to death because the law says they should. And Jesus comes along, and God has come down to have a look. And Jesus wrote something on the ground. Who knows? Who knows what he wrote? He, in, in, the, in the dusty ground with his finger, he wrote things. And nobody tells us what he wrote. So there are all kinds of conjectures. Um, I think he wrote when the Maple Leafs would actually win the Stanley Cup. But other people don't agree. Some people say he wrote the names of the uh, accusers who, in the dark of night, went to see the hookers. And here they are throwing stones. They're going to throw stones at a woman because of adultery. So anyway, when Jesus looks up, they're gone. And he says, oh, where did your accusers go? And she says, sir, I don't see them. He says, nor do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Grace. So th th this is real, earthy, human Grace. It's not, a, it's not a notion. It's not something that's Old Testament God reigning down, although he has the right to and could. Um, punishment. It's God coming down and being a God of justice, being a God who, who makes the comments that are true and real and lasting and powerful. In Jesus, justice and grace meet. In Jesus, justice and mercy meet. So the thief on the cross, he's listening to the other guy, and the other guy is mocking and saying, you know, you get yourself down, get us down. And he says, have you no fear of God? We're here because we deserve to be here. This man has done nothing. And then he says, please remember me. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Mercy. Mercy is when you don't deserve it at all. And this guy knew he didn't. 
But this guy knew he needed it. He needed the chesed. He needed the grace and mercy of God. And so in desperation, he reached out to Jesus and said, could you forgive me? In Jesus, justice and mercy meet, and in Jesus, justice and forgiveness meet. Um, Jesus came down and saw the mess that we were in, and he didn't judge us. He came down and he said, you, you can't do anything about it, can you? So do you want forgiveness? It will cost you nothing because you have nothing to give. You have nothing whereby you can earn it. You can, there's nothing whereby you can impress me. I have come to feel the pain of your lostness. I have come to bring justice alongside of mercy and forgiveness and grace for you if, if you would like to have it. There's a, a Kendrick song uh, from the 70s, I think, called Come and See. Um, and one pair of lines in, in that song says this, We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet, and the guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. It's beautiful, isn't it? Because there's the meeting that has to do ultimately um, with judgment. Judgment is deserved. Um, the, the verdict uh, on this character in Guelph was deserved. It was a contract killing, clearly proven. He was guilty. But there's nobody who can step in and say, I will take his punishment. He'll take it himself. For us, the verdict was guilty. Proven guilty. Every one of us. And so we have to say we desperately need grace, not just God's love. We need his grace because we're guilty. And Jesus says, I know. I came down to look and see, and I found that you are guilty. But I have brought some things together only I could bring. And I have been called by the Almighty God, the one to whom all justice and judgment belongs, And shall not the God of the whole earth do what's right? Yes, he will by bringing his forgiveness and overwhelming his justice with his mercy and forgiveness for us. It's it's amazing. So dive into the depth of God's grace. Not just as an interesting thing, but it's because you, you need it. You need to swim in that. And then dive into God's um, judgment and say, it, here's the answer. There will be a day when everybody will say, mm-hmm, that's right. That's fair. Somebody has brought the final judgment, and everything now makes sense. Not that we understand it, but everything now has come under the authority, the sovereignty of Jesus as Lord, and every human being will say, that's right. I didn't accept it. They didn't accept it. That was atrocious, but this now is right. He has called it. Didn't have to take it upstairs. He has called it, and it is absolutely take to the bank right. He is the judge that we've all been looking for. And we were afraid to face him because, to be honest, we had some stuff in our closets But now we realize that the judge himself has come and he's found that stuff. And he's set us free from it. It's good news. 
Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the judge of the whole earth, and you will do right. And we thank you that you have done it and begun to do it through Jesus, your son, um, in whom we find no fault, um, but he is the perfect judge, uh, the perfect um, arbitrator, the, the, the perfect lawmaker, the, the, the perfect answer giver. Um, so, Father, we bless you for him in Jesus' name. Amen.